0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And that's right, we're here to talk about movies again with you. And Danielle, we I'm looking at the watch. We got no time to dilly-dally because we have none. Quite an exciting guest today. I
2: have not been this excited, and this is no no slight to us. I've not been this excited to record since we started this podcast.
0: Oh, me, me neither. Let's let's just get that out of the way. Like we are yeah. this is a uh, this is an epic epic episode and we're both super excited. Oh my god. I truly cannot believe that this day is here. I know. The, I'm so excited because here's the thing, okay? We did an episode a few weeks ago about a little movie called Grease 2. And I remember texting you the morning that the episode dropped, and I was like, already we have, like, a shit ton of comments
2: about... And emails. Yes.
0: And I was like, it hasn't even been out for more than, like, a couple hours. (laughs) Like, it dropped in the middle of the night, and suddenly in the morning, it was, like, so many comments. I mean, to the point where I was like, wow, I had no idea... Like this it's a, it's a new holiday,
2: yeah, it's oh a new my holiday. God, it's
0: it, we have activated so many people, and it made me really happy because, as people heard in that episode, I go embarrassingly hard on my love for Greece, too, like in in a like I listened back to it and was like, I sound like a maniac. <laughs> and, um, I hope that I'm not scaring people. But then I realized that everybody kind of feels similarly, which actually made me feel very validated. so yes. Yes, and you know um, because the whole thing was my argument was that Greece 2 is better than Greece 1 and I was like everyone's going to come at me but actually the opposite happened. No, where I Grease Greece 2
2: is better than most of the movies that came out that year. <laughs> I know. Like exactly. I'll say it and Same. I instantly said like I don't like the first Greece. Come at me. I don't <laughs> care.
0: There's a lot of people that actually that that said that, too, which I was like, yeah. wow, that, that went the opposite of how I thought it was going to go.
2: You, you should feel validated across the board, but especially for today, because yes. um, today's just a joy. And it's someone who is st- strongly tied to Greece, too, but who we've also mentioned on the podcast before. That's right because we've loved this person's work. We have a guest today and we love this person's work for a very long time. So we've mentioned him before in discussing the Inside Man or Inside Man and you know other other movies and you know films that he's part of, but we thought why not just get him on the pod? Yes. <laughs> why keep why keep this love siloed to ourselves?
0: Yes, let's force the person that we love to sit here and bear witness to our
2: intensity. That's my whole brand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a passionate person. Well,
0: yes. So, you know, let's just, without further ado, let's just introduce our very special guest for this episode. You will know him probably as Demucci from Greece 2. It's the
2: dreamy
1: Peter <laughs> Freshette. <laughs> Hello,
2: hi. Thank
1: hi, everybody. hi God. Daniel.
2: Uh, and you you can't see this video, but the dreaminess just continues. Like just yeah. like a fine wine
1: because we're Zooming.
2: Yeah, you're you're sitting in front of this beautiful bookshelf. Just beautiful. we're so so excited to have you on the pod. Thank you for
1: Agreeing to be on our podcast. Oh, I'm excited to be on it. I, I love listening to you too. I think oh. it's because I'm, you know, I'm nutty about movies anyway. So I, uh, you know, I, I want to go deeply granularly into hearing people's takes on movies and talk about movies, but you're also like your friendship and, and it, you're like, a, you, and speaking of movies, it's like you're a fantastic, like just the goal of the best kind of buddy picture. Cause. Oh, you're wow. salty, filthy, <laughs> sometimes hilarious, really, really smart, and really like there's a uh, finishing each other's thoughts and sentences. It's great. It's it's great to listen to because you know you're listening to a great kind of friendship. Oh my god! Thank you yeah. so
2: much. I'm I'm not equipped I, for this. I'm gonna cry. I know. Me too. Oh, <laughs>
1: go ahead and cry. That's because <laughs> that's my that's my bailiwick. I love all the crying. Oh. I love drama.
2: Yes. No, okay, but I can't
1: wait. I'm sure most of your listeners think that too. <laughs> oh, they Yeah.
2: We we do get a like lot it. of comments that say something to that effect. But that was just so eloquent and beautiful. And uh, oh I can't wait. I try. Oh yeah, like just you're in this is just who you are as a person, just an eloquent, beautiful person. Uh, there but you go. I definitely we're we're this is all a ruse to get us to hang out in person one day, and I don't do small yeah. talk anymore. So the minute we meet, I'm just going to, like, weep all over you. It'll be great. <laughs> sure. It'll be great. Now, the first thing I want to ask you before we get into your stunning career is there are conflicting reports, but I believe you were born and raised in Rhode Island. I'm not sure if yes. it was Warwick or Coventry.
1: Born in Warwick, because that's where the hospital was. Well, that's also... <laughs> That's where (laughs) our family lived. But, and, and we moved, we moved to Coventry where our, I was the last kid born of of the fifth child. Five. (laughs) Wow. And we had like a little, we had like a little summer shack in Coventry on a lake. And when I was a teeny infant, uh, the family sold the Warwick house and we moved to the little shack in Coventry. So I grew up in a little shack. But then when I was, Around three, four years old, they added on. To, so my whole year of my life was all these people coming and building the house, making the house more than twice its size.
2: So from birth, you're like, I'm seeing different types of people. I'm noticing personalities. Yeah. Like, and the reason I ask is because I lived in Rhode Island for four years. Oh my God, um, where? I lived in Wakefield. I did too. And did I you? Did too. Well, because yeah.
1: URI, right? You went to URI. Yeah. yeah. I lived I in Wakefield. I, was in my I lived in Narragansett. There we go. I got Love Narragansett. Oh, South County. Yeah.
2: South County is so pretty and cool and like, oh, just the, the, the food down there is amazing, yeah. and walking on the beach wall is amazing. But I, before moving there, didn't know much about Rhode Island, and it is definitely a small place. But there are things that are so specific to it that I'm wondering if you if you miss things about Rhode Island, like the big blue bug yeah, or
1: Dells, or like <laughs> oh yeah, I have I have a I, I I miss Dells so much. Me too. Just out of the blue, this usually happens in the middle of the night if I'm awake and I'm. On the iPad and just following so many, like, oh, I, how did I get down this rabbit hole? I ended up looking at Dell's lemonade T-shirts and sweatshirts, and I ordered some, and now I have.
2: Of course, you did. Yes. You have to. It's like ingrained. Dell's is a frozen lemonade that is like no other, and yeah. it is a cornerstone and the of my life. Of
1: it- Texture yes. of it, taste of it, and you wouldn't find it outside Rhode Island. I wore my uh-huh. Dell's lemonade t-shirt one day. I live in Atlanta. And I was in the Trader Joe's in Atlanta. And a at woman came and she was pushing her basket. And she said, i oh my God, I'm my Dell's. And I said, Do How you do know? Do you and she said, I <laughs> oh my God, so nice to make my <laughs> husband is a, my husband in this house. From Island. Like, whenever we go, we get it down. I was like, you don't sound like you're from Rhode Island. Yeah.
2: Exactly. It is such a specific and weird and wonderful little place. So I just I love that we have that in common because it is yeah. the weirdest and wildest place that produces the best people and clearly the best actress. It's Peter Frushette and Viola Davis. What more do you fucking yeah. want, people? Right? Ah, uh, but yes, thank you for for running down memory lane with me f- for that for that brief moment. But it's I think Rhode Island is a very special place. Me
0: too. No, well, I just have to say I also live in Atlanta, and I'm pretty sure I met that same woman at Trader Joe's talking about something <laughs> else, not not just lemonade. Um, but I, I we really are excited to have you because I mean. Uh, besides the fact that we just did this Grease two episode, which was such a barn burner, but um, I mean, you know, I, we, we first brought, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank it was you good for because
1: not- I, I hadn't seen Superman two since it came out, and <laughs> oh, so I was no! like, oh my god, I got, a, I got a, Oh, I, I was, I loved listening to that. I was like, ah, I need to see this now. I still haven't it, it seen it, a, but I, has I will. Has a whole different
2: tang now, as an adult, yeah. but it's better. It's better. Yeah,
0: no, we that was like such a uh, popular episode for us, and so I, you know, uh, but I, but I want to ask you because that was Grease two was technically your first film, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. it was my first time ever. Yeah, in front of a camera, anything. Yeah.
0: Wow, but you had done theater.
1: Yeah, in New York, I was sort of struggling along, and yeah, do, <laughs> trying to scrape together a career and working in the restaurants, and yeah.
0: Do uh, you remember, like how, like how did you get involved with it? Was it something that you were making a conscious decision to be like, oh, I want to be in movies, or you know, I'm,
1: I'm going to try out for sure. this part or something? Almost, almost every actor I knew wanted to be in movies. Yeah, we were all in New York, and we were all. I came up with. I, we don't even need to get into it now, but I came up with just a ton of people who all exploded in their own. Um, time it was kind of amazing that we all started as this little group but no I had an agent who had seen me in some stuff and would submit me for stuff and I got submitted for Grease too. luckily I didn't and I went and I auditioned in New York because in those days, this we're talking more than 40 years ago now we're talking 81 summer of 81 I think um and I was a kid I was a child yes uh, little baby. Uh, I didn't know anything about anything. I knew what I was doing and I knew I also had a good background in improv and sketch comedy and besides all the other stuff. So there was I think I had some kind of I had like a callback with all the producers and director because they would. Back in those days, they would fly in everywhere. Nobody goes anywhere now. All actors exactly. are just on their little iPhones all and ring lights. People. It's yeah. awful. It's um, so bad. But I was, I think I was doing, I was doing, they asked us to improv. There was a group of us and they'd all read the script. I hadn't read the script. I only had my sides and I had learned some song from the fifties. <laughs> And they we were they were improving off the script the circumstances in the script, and I just thought, Oh my god, these people are amazing. I they're the bar is high. And so I started making shit up too, and it was good. And and the other people were like, What's he talking about? And so I think my audition was good because I thought I was just keeping up with how creative and clever they were, but I was just making Facts and story points. Uh, like
2: you said, you're but, you're naturally gifted, but also you have this, this did skill I say that to improv. If I did, I, I'm saying, cut it out. I'm saying <laughs> oh, okay. we're saying that you, you're <laughs> saying that you that you had this background in improv. I'm saying, yeah, you're yeah. naturally gifted. Like you definitely wanted to be part of it in a way that was yeah. that still felt like you. It sounds like, which is perfect for yeah. an audition. That's all I ever want when I see auditions. It's like I also you thought.
1: Yeah, I just thought. Once I read the script, I thought, my God, this is every boy, every doofus, hilarious, oversexed boy I ever knew (laughs) in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island.
2: You had a lot to draw from. Rhode Island is the horniest place I've ever lived. So you had a lot to draw from. And they
1: (laughs) all could have been named Louis DiMucci. They might as well have been. (laughs) I went to high school with just every Louis DiMucci (laughs) <laughs> this day, yeah. So I was like, "Oh, I want to bring that, and I want to honor. I want to be my own. Uh, I mean, I made him me, but I also made him. I enhanced my own inner doofus and inner <laughs> oversexed. And
2: <laughs> that is literally the story of my life. Enhanced
1: yeah. my inner doofus. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's it has stood me well. Exactly. For
2: decades. <laughs> So you're on this, you get cast in this film and this is your first experience and you're filming and you're like forming these relationships with people and then, again, like you have this background clearly in theater and in improv and in, in singing. Like when did you start singing and thinking that that could be part of your professional life as well?
1: I always sang. I always didn't, I didn't think, I, 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 like when I, I loved, I, I was, oh, my ear was glued to the radio all through my childhood and I always knew I could always tell you what, you know, I knew all the lyrics to every song that came over the AM Providence radio station, knew it all. Um, And I just sang, I walked around singing all the time, and I didn't have any shame about it. I'd sing loud. (laughs) Beautiful. Um, And then I sang every once in a while, you know, in school, there would be a musical and I would never... In high school, I wasn't very involved in theater because I, it just didn't, I, I thought, no, I'm going to go to college for it. No, my parents didn't understand. Why are you going to college? Why do you want to major in theater? You didn't even do it in high school. And I was like, because I didn't like them. I didn't like those kids.
0: Oh my God. Thank you for saying end. that because I think I yeah. said that too. It, I was in drama club, but I did. I kind of resented the drama club kids in a weird way. So I, I, it just warms my heart that you've said that.
1: <laughs> I did a, I did a play in the ninth grade. Um, I did Arsenic and Olace and I played one of the cops, Officer Brophy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I think my big line was Colonel, you promised not to do that. And I just. <laughs> I said it all the time, and my brothers and sisters go, "Say your line, say your line. Colonel. You promised not to do that." And I <laughs> would, had great fun, but I, I didn't. I started not being cast in the tenth grade, and I thought, like, "Hell with them all." Yeah, and I exactly. Stuck. But I went. I went to college. I would. Uh, I would sing. You know, I sang. I, I, I had great teacher there, who's kind of a mentor to me, and she had us singing all the time. Um Yeah, so I just, I, yeah, I sang. I'm a terrible dancer, but it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't. (laughs) I I always tell Millie,
2: I'm like, Millie, I do not have that kind of joy in my heart. I cannot
1: dance. I (laughs) love to dance and still dance, but it's not like in organized choreography. Whenever I've accidentally landed in something where there's choreography, it's I, I earnestly work really hard on it. And the choreographer always says, almost exactly verbatim, almost always says, oh, well, that's interesting, too, what you're doing.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. You're having a real uh, uh, all-that-jazz experience. That's like yeah. the opening of all that jazz where they're like... <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Well, Billy, do you want to go into the letter or do do you have anything? Because we have, we have something now. I'm sure this person who wrote in never thought we'd be reading this letter (laughs) to you. (laughs) I understand because I can't believe that you're
0: here after we said everything we said about you on this podcast, <laughs> multiple episodes. So
2: I understand, but it's a lovely letter, and it brings up a question that I wanted to ask you anyway. So uh, we have a letter from Leslie C. And the subject <gasps> is "Thank you for the grease, too, love." Ladies, I love, love that you also love Greece too. I am planning to buy a home in the next couple of months. So my parents said, don't waste money on rent, live here. So nice, but Lord, do they hate Grease too? And so I can't watch it while they're around. I love it so much, so much I have a biker heaven tote bag. I have loved it since getting the cassette tape soundtrack and played it with a Walkman while my parents blasted Phantom of the Opera in the car for what seemed like five years. My parents were singing along while I'm listening to Reproduction like a little weirdo. However, why I wanted to write this specifically is Millie's comment on Dreamy Demucci. We are one and the
1: same. (laughs) (laughs) That's me breaking in. Sorry.
2: (laughs) No, no, break in. We are so low rent here. Just break in. He was a fashion icon with those yeah. floral shirts. That lace item was amazing. <gasps> I like that he helps his girlfriend's weird talent show. He is hilarious. His face acting is wild and has the best. He's mugging. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call
1: it what it is.
2: <laughs> and he has the best voice of the T Birds. Although I love all of the T Birds as examples of how not to act in high school. I can honestly say his performance in "Do It for Our Country" was my sexual awakening. It was my Kevin <laughs> Klein moment, Leslie C. As you know, as a listener of the podcast, Kevin Klein was my sexual awakening, where I was like, "Oh yeah, guys, I I get it now." Yeah. Um, so Leslie had this experience with you, and I want to know how you <laughs> feel about this. I want to know how often this comes up in your life, and how does your husband feel about it? How do, does he know that he's married to like a sex icon?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I lo- first of all, don't let me forget. Uh, can d- don't uh, what was it? A biker Heaven tote bag. A biker Let's Heaven go back tote to- bag. Where'd she get that? Was that some Paramount swag or is it? Yeah, <laughs> I love that she had. Anyway, because biker know she it too. The whole I know. I, I know that you both have a whole thing about the Biker Heaven in the end of the movie, and like, oh whoa, God. the oh. movie just went into the into the, the upper something. Dream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, completely. Which, that's exactly what they they did. That's that's exactly it's what perfect. the movie was. Yeah, uh. this is a thing. no I'm just me. I'm just me. Uh. Uh, but uh, no, I do. <laughs> I I do hear. I uh, there was somebody, yeah, that I uh, I've I hear it uh from time to time. But uh, I no, I
2: really I love that for you. I love that. That's and, how it should be.
1: I get a lot of DMs about Oh, really because, <laughs> Yeah, because I'm easy to find on Instagram. You can't find me on Facebook and on Twitter. you can't find me at all. And my entire Twitter account is about um, uh, uh, American ninja. Um, it's all like zillions some political but just zillions of tweets about yeah he 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 scaled the wall listen (laughs) you need to come hang out with
2: me and my grandma that is her favorite fucking show I know all about those freaks they are scaling walls when they are on the rolly thing and I'm like are they gonna make it and they're going too slow I'm yeah. right there with you, and you're um, yelling and
1: you're crying. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: They always tell the story of like this person was born with spina bifida and now he can lift a car, and you're like, holy
1: shit! Exactly. <laughs> yeah. See how we can see how we can get. We went way sideways. I think it's because you want me to talk about me and sex or something. Well, whatever. <laughs> no,
2: I'm I'm bringing it back. I get a, are- I
1: get I get a lot of DMs. Really? Uh, yes, I would say it's 50-50 women and men. Like, yeah. oh, and it, and I look at their photo and I go, oh, that's an old person. Then they go, <laughs> when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh i'm then that makes me an old old you know whatever but I, even young people young people i guess who discover the movie now go hey man you're cool and you're sexy and you still got it i saw your picture oh or God. whatever that's, but that's I what makes about.
2: me feel old people are like you still got it like still i lost it at some yeah. point great thank yes, you for a <laughs> time there but i love that you get dms that are just like we have no boundaries we're we're just going to tell you that we think you're hot
1: they well i won't go too into it but there are no boundaries because i get (laughs) photos and videos
2: wow okay so at the end of this i'm going to teach you how to turn that off also these (laughs) people are too horny what the hell (laughs) (laughs) you're excessively horny that is wild are you like
0: generally surprised though by the cult? I mean cuz I I think Grease 2 is kind of like the ultimate cult film, right? And yeah. I and I this is my wheelhouse, so you know, in my estimation, Grease 2 is like Citizen Kane, right? For me and people <laughs> of my ilk, right? Yes. Uh, but are you surprised like by that. like the passion behind it, right? Are you surprised? No,
1: because no, because it happened pretty quickly after the, yeah. the famous flopdom of it all. I mean, it came out in 82, came out in June of 82 and was either sneered at or just dismissed and what and people didn't buy a lot of tickets to it either it can't you know it was competing with things like et and poltergeist and it it should have been i think it was expected to be a gigantic hit i didn't know anything i didn't know i did i wasn't disappointed or let down i didn't know what that world was at that time anyway so i it just seemed like oh okay well move on to the next thing i thought it was good it's cool um And it really did. It made no difference at all for about a year in my life. Nobody knew about it. Nobody, it didn't, it had nothing to do with, you know, my my auditioning for a Strindberg play or a Chekhov play. Let's get the kids from Greece too. um, But the follow, it was pretty quickly, the following summer of 83, it started sneaking in on cable. And uh-huh. I think it got. Uh, they must have seen the numbers of uh, they, uh, and they started putting it on all the time. And so, really, yeah. a year after it came out, people of all ages, including little teeny children, knew all the songs. And I remember walking walking down the street in uh, Los Angeles and hearing a bunch of teeny teeny little children singing "Reproduction, Reproduction," and I was like, "Is that even?" Right, but uh, <laughs> probably, and I was and I was like, "How do they know it? Do they have the recognition?" I was like, no, they're watching it right now on TV. It's mm-hmm. on TV, and I was aware. And then I started that a full year after the movie came out. Just as an anonymous person walking around, I started getting recognized everywhere I went. Demucci, wow. yeah, and oh. it it, it, it actually never went away. I still, it uh, it, I'm is. in my sixties. Hi. But I still believe I get recognized at least once a week, I would say wow. out Amazing. in public Amazing. for being in Greece too. Be- not for being not- in anything else. Oh. <laughs> no, well truly,
2: I think I think that your your career is so impressive in that like you you stand out in everything I see you in. Like I always recognize That's you. Nice. In everything that you do. So when we were we were talking about Inside Man, and I was like, Oh my god! And it was it's really specific to you. I think that you, sh- I want to give you that credit. That like it's it's lovely Thank that you. you're recognized from Greece too. But I think that in terms of your work, you are always a standout for me. Yeah. Thanks.
1: You know what I wanted to say about the fashion icon uh, of, yes. uh, and the shirt. I actually, I some of those shirts were mine. Ah. Peter's shirt. I I went to I went to one of my first fittings for the movie wearing, well, uh, a shirt wearing a, a pink with black diamonds shirt. It's the shirt that Dumucci wears in the reproduction yeah. number. Yes. And the costume designer was like, "What is that?" And I said, well, "I don't know. It's from a thrift store because I bought. I was a habitué of the thrift shops." Yeah. And He said, that's perfect, you need to wear that. And so they, what else do you have? And so I brought in (laughs) uh, like uh, three or four other shirts and they rented from me. It was an amazing thing because I was coming from a world where I hadn't, no money at all right. and i was you know making i thought i was making a gigantic salary and my agents were like you're making nothing this, but still i was like it's crazy the money's pouring in every week from the you know it's hundreds a of them. dollars um but they rent the, i think they give they in those days they would give you fifteen dollars a week If they were rent for the entire run of the thing, if they were renting your shirt, and theoretically they were supposed to get back to you, but I never got them back. Oh yeah, they 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 went track of that stuff. Yeah. So the black lace thing she mentions my shirt. Oh Oh Leslie, brilliant. Leslie. But I, I gave. I was like, "It's fine." I give it up to the universe. They went into the system somehow, but several months later, I go to see. The Ron Howard-directed film Night Shift with uh, uh, (gasps) Michael It was Michael Keaton's bursting onto the scene in, like, an amazing supporting role. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this guy's great. And he's got fantastic shirts. Shows up in my shirt. No! I'm like, there are two of those pink with the black triangle it mm, shows up in my shirt. Same I was like designer. it went what well, no but it was the same studio. So it must have gone into some oh, I what? don't know, some in the racks and I'm like, well, at least at, at least the shirt is like having a whole career in like, movies. Wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: this is the kind of movie history that I love. I live for.
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> like, the yeah. teeny-weeny <laughs> weeny trivia. Yeah. But wow. We're going to
2: see that shirt come up in, like, The Last of Us next season or something. Like yeah. I'm going to track yeah. that
1: shirt now. It could. Why well, it should. <laughs> it would look so good on Pedro Pascal. Wouldn't
2: it? <laughs> Everything looks good on that dude. My goodness. But, yeah, I love... And I love that, that the, the way that Les, Leslie is talking about how ingrained this was in her childhood, because I think a lot of us have had that experience as well, probably because it was on cable all the time. Yeah. Um, but it was just... I would find myself singing songs from from this movie just wildly in my life out in the playground and just walking down the street. And it just really, it gets into, it's the better, it's the better Grease for a reason. It gets into your DNA, it gets into your bones. It's,
1: yeah, it's a whole nother movie from, it's a whole nother kind of movie. Yes. Which is what you basically said in your in your episode, on your podcast, that from the first Grease. It's a Completely. whole nother movie and also the songs the first greece everything seems it's like it's all of a piece and all the songs seem like they came from the same mind and the same just the same reason they same. they all have this they're they're all different they're great songs but the greece two is all separate songwriters what they did here's another little piece of trivia for you they wrote the screenplay the the screenwriter wrote the screenplay and it was determined, and obviously all these scripts are always, <laughs> there's always a million people that have a hand in shaping it because I think they thought we've got a huge hit on our hand, a big moneymaker, which didn't happen. We're all going to get a piece. <laughs> they, they structured the script with little <laughs> slots for here's where a song will go, a song about bowling or a oh, song about wow. the but the. the The bomb shelters, they, and they farmed it up. They, they, um, they had songwriters uh, sort of bid to like submit songs. Here's my, like they would read the script and they go, here's my bomb shelter song. Here's my bowling song. Here's my luau song. And they, yeah, they picked the song. So so it's all different. (laughs)
2: Yeah. <laughs> like I would need an alt soundtrack of all of those songs.
1: And so they're all, they're all distinctive on their own and they don't all sound like they were written by the same team or writer or ear or voice or Yeah. That.
0: See that's interesting to me because now because I think I said uh, you know what I like about Grease 2 among many things is the idea that those those musical numbers feel like almost like music videos, like it was almost like yeah. a kind of separate. Like you know, you're just kind of watching. So now that you're telling me that they were written by like separate people and that people were sort of pitching their song for the movie, this makes sense now to me. See, awesome. Now I see
1: it. Your idea, your well, looking at it as as like a you know, the movie was shot in eight end of eighty one and into eighty two. Totally formative really crude times for music videos, like, yeah. th- y- like the tubes and all, you know, like yeah. you look at them now and you go, oh, wow, it's basically Pac-Man. <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, real, like they didn't quite know what they were doing, but it's Patricia Birch. Yeah. Pat Birch, right. her sensibility. Yeah. She, uh, I mean, she was a huge Broadway choreographer and director yeah. and had done, But for years, anytime anybody did any dancing on SNL, for example, she did it. Wow! Uh, Anytime Steve Martin danced on Saturday Night Live, she did. She did the first Greece. She'd done other movies, and now was directing and choreographing. So she was Mm -hmm. she was utterly in charge of she her sensibility and what like that really long you know who's that guy, right? Now we're getting mm-hmm. inside baseball. If somebody's listening, if somebody's still listening <laughs> at this they point, are. and not fast forward, Trust it's because they, 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 they know the movie. But it's <laughs> like, the, when we were shooting, I, I think we shot that a whole, we shot that number for probably a whole week, maybe even more, because it's it's all these different parking lots and bowling. It's just all yeah. this stuff, and we were like, "What is this? What is this going to be?" And yeah. like, her assistants Straight would be, "Don't worry car. about it." <laughs> yeah. No, but her like people with her assistants and producing stuff. We. Don't worry about it. There's a plan. We know what we're doing. And I loved what they did because she had that sense of, she had a total eye. Her eye Uh. and dance were, and her mind were all connected. She had that early Uh. sort of music video sensibility. Wow. And some of those are like gorgeous. They stand alone as gorgeous music videos.
2: Oh, I completely agree. That makes so much sense now because it did have a very modern sensibility about it. It had a more punk rock sensibility about it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes complete sense now. And I love that she had such control over that, not just because, you know, she's a woman and because of the time, but because I think that it's it's probably difficult to to do a sequel or to do something based on a popular property and make it your own. So I think that she did
1: that with you guys, too. She also carried over. Yeah, she carried over from the first Grease as the choreographer. Rangel Kleiser had directed it, but I think they probably worked really closely together. Yeah, no, and also because she wasn't afraid of... She'd done giant-scale Broadway musical stuff, so (laughs) she wasn't afraid of the giant scale of stuff, and I think she loves movies. And I think she wow. was like, oh, my God, I get to play with cameras and lenses. And so, and loves movie musicals, obviously. Yeah, oh, um, completely. So I think she, I, I think she was not cowed by it. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I think she was like, I'm making what, what my eye yeah. sees in my mind. Oh, my God. So that's. and this about art. She's yeah. making art. And about what, is it Leslie who wrote this? Yes, that? it's Leslie. Eva, yes. Uh, what she said about. What'd you say, uh, Lewis's devotion to Sharon, or something? Oh yeah, the- it, yeah. <laughs> she it's says. it's be- "It's because you know, it's I, I." Every once in a while, Pat Birch would say, "I'm Sharon. I'm the girl who was putting on the show. <laughs> I'm Sharon." And at one point, she said to me, "She said, you know, if I'm Sharon, then you're you're my boyfriend." Oh,
0: uh, oh
1: sort of kidding me, but I was like, "Yes," and that and that I. Was completely sort of weirdly secure and in a safe bubble the entire four months we made yeah. that movie because I thought oh. I like her she's my girlfriend Patric <laughs> oh. <laughs> is my girl and and I treated Maureen Tiffey that way too like I want to just oh I want to please her I yeah. want to please and and that's in the dynamic and that was in the dynamic between Maureen and me anyways like I want to make her happy yeah. she's got a frown on her face today what can I do and that it was my I mean an actor looks for what do I need what's my overall thing I'm going that was it like I want to make Sharon happy
2: I love that. that kind of generosity translates so well on on screen that's wonderful and again inherent to you as a person that you could even recognize that but I love that because it does It's very strongly comes through in the the film, so it's wonderful. I also want to know if there, and this is, I think the statute of limitations is up, but if not, (laughs) totally fine. Wildest stories from set, wildest story from the premiere. What was your favorite moment of not just acting in the film, but like being with this cast?
1: I had so many. You know, nothing, I don't think anything was wild that I experienced. Things were low-level, bubbling wild all the time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's an excitement because a lot of people, like this was their first film, right? For
1: a lot of people, so... We, there was a lot of, I recall a lot, a lot of hilarity and dancing to music in the sort of parking lot asphalt between the, you know, people in and among people's trailers. And uh, there also was like, uh, like happens in any group of. dramatic individuals there was always like one person who was like you fucking i hate you i'm storming into my trap there was all that stuff (laughs) or there was somebody there in in your high school there was always or in your teen group there was always like two people who were like against everybody else and then all of a sudden those loyalties and allegiances shifted so of course there was that but it was and i found i have found that in every thing i've ever done yeah, completely. But it yeah, was re- It was really, really fun.
2: I love that you got to have that experience for your first time out. And then again, like I, I'm just, I we could keep you here all day, but we're gonna just, we're gonna pivot to this in person one day. But um, <laughs> I just am so excited that, again, like the person that you are in your heart translates into. Pretty much everything I've ever seen you do. Yeah. Um, That's so I just, nice. kind of, I just kind of want to know, like, what you're excited about now, because you have such a wide range of of possibilities, and and I just I just want to know what what makes you excited now in terms of acting. I'm excited about a bunch
1: of stuff. First of all, I teach acting here in Atlanta. I t- I've taught in different periods of time in my life. Um, uh-huh. Because about maybe like 15 years ago, I remember. I was I, I, actually, yeah, it was in 2008. And I was having breakfast with my guy, David, in New York. And he was like, what's going on? What you? And I was like, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know what I should be doing right now. I, I mean, I, yeah, when I'm older, yes, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach acting. And he was like, okay, don't, don't take this the wrong way at all, at all, because I'm helping you. What do you mean older? and I was like well what do you mean what do you mean older and it was in that conversation that I decided okay I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna call some I'm gonna figure out and it, it wasn't long before boom I was teaching at NYU and teaching like taking over a friend's class when she went to you know coach Somebody on a movie, yeah. and so I did that for like three years while I was acting, and then and have picked it up from time to time and coached a lot back in the old days. Like somebody would hire me to coach them. This is as I'm doing jobs too, but yeah. I was falling. I was falling in love with that kind of acting work where I didn't have to look fresh,
2: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> or not, you, you know, you're not number one on the call sheet. You could just yeah. come
1: in. So I would get, you know, I would coach people who would do, you know, they would, I would go and sit in their trailer and (laughs) whatever. But then I, I really fell back in love with acting in a, in a, because of all that in a no ego kind of way, which has stuck, I would say to this day. And I was offered to go to be in the acting company at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And I thought, that's weird. I know nothing about classical. Acting. I mean, I know I watch it, but I don't do it. And mm-hmm. I thought, I'll do it. That'll be like grad school. I'll have no ego. I'll just learn. And yeah. I stayed there for five, five full years. Um, wow. and that, yeah, that brought me so much satisfaction because I loved acting and didn't care. I, I wasn't like, oh, I need to, who cares? I, I never had any indignation about. I need to to do my shit, and why are you? Why are you taking a step on my laugh line? You know. Yeah. So I still sort of love that, and now in I I teach a scene study a couple of scene scene study classes in Atlanta, and I have great uh, actors in my class. They're all working like pro. Actors, And Um, I'm totally excited about that because as people re-up in my classes, we become a little company and we all know each other and we delve deep into stuff. So I'm excited about that. And every Uh once in a while, somebody, like last year, somebody asked me to go do this amazing play, The Inheritance by Matthew Lopez in Austin. And I went and I did that and it was probably the best, yeah, it was certainly the best experience I've ever had as an actor. Uh And I learned I learned so much not about I, I, I learned who I was because you have to catch up with yourself every Absolutely. once in a while. And I realized, oh, I'm yeah, I I learned and accepted that I was.
2: Oh <laughs> no! Not well, well let's say to me what I'm what I'm hearing is that you you are and I love this. These are my favorite kind of people on the planet is someone who's committed to lifelong learning and challenging yeah. yourself, yeah. and that's yeah. how you get to know yourself. Like this is who I am yeah. now because I'm constantly challenging myself. Or oh wait, I'm meeting myself at a whole different point in life, and now I'm this person because I just took this job or said yes to this yeah. thing. Yeah, I love that, and I, your students are so lucky. To have you, yeah. and I—it's just—it's well, really nice. impressive that you're like creating a um, like like you said, like your own kind of troop and your own kind of group of yeah. people. Because Atlanta, and they is such a,
1: they yeah, they work Atlanta's like crazy, Mike. A,
2: ta- a big working town, yeah. like that's yeah. Everything I've ever made, we felt we're filming in something in Atlanta. Yeah. So it's wonderful that you get to see that extension of yourself through through students. I think it's it's beautiful, and it's you're just again like so, uh oh, so wonderful.
1: I. Well, In the inheritance, the play in Austin, it's, it was in two parts. It's it's a seven hour astonishing play. Um, but as the sort of production photos started coming out on social media and people were posting them, I would see them. I wouldn't, I don't go looking for stuff ever at all. Um, but I would see them and I go, (laughs) Oh my, this is a play that had about 10 or 11, Beautiful young men in it. And sometimes they were in Speedos and nothing else. And sometimes, you know, but, and you know, so what? They were all because there was a lot of nudity and a lot of sort of love for the male body in the play, they all right. looked great and had their shirts off in these books. And there I am. I'm playing, uh, the author E.M. Forster yeah. and another character too, who was a very dowdy, introverted very eccentric man in his 50s and there i am doing what i knew i was doing, like looking exactly like what i thought i was doing and intending but i was like holy fuck i'm (laughs) ancient this wrinkly guy and all these beautiful men where i had it it shifted something in my head for about a day, I was like, Oh my God. I am a <laughs> lot, but I turned into that. I turned into that. And, and, and I'm, it's okay that I say this because yes, I did. I turned into that. And now I own it. But right. I, right. I, I, because I thought, Oh no, these guys and I were all the same thing. We're all actors. We're all talking about the play. We're all doing good work. And I thought we were all the same thing until I saw the photographs as proof uh. of like, no, the, the wrinkled, crepey skinned you know under here i'm, I'm playing with the waddle uh, on my throat <laughs> it was, it's like i'm like no that's is that what i am is that what everybody thinks and then i embraced it and uh it changed my life well i i was happy in that play to never need to bring any freshness I yeah, didn't have to. Exactly. I didn't have to call my inner dewiness and freshness up. I may look Ex- dewy and fresh, sort of, in our Zoom window now, but I—I I really, uh, my where I was coming from in the seven hours of that play was right. wrinkly and, <laughs> and <laughs> the embodiment, not, self, not <laughs> self-aware. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh,
2: uh, this is. Again, my favorite thing in the world. I love, love, love that you are just so enthusiastic about your own life and your own work. My own wrinkles. (laughs) <laughs> and your own wrinkles. And just like, again, the best people on the planet are the ones who learn and grow. And just see, it's it's a real treat. And it's special for us as viewers to be able to be on that journey with you in your work. But I love
1: just even so talking nice. to you now. Like, yeah. just talking who to you knew? now. Like, I had no idea this conversation would go to oh, this yeah. place at all.
0: No, we love it. Oh, my gosh, Danielle, what? What am I going to say about what just happened? I don't know.
2: I mean, is Peter Frechette not the most charming person you've ever met in your life? Like, just so charming.
0: Quite honestly, one of the most charming people ever. Also, the idea that we live in the same town is just, like, so exciting to me. The fact that he goes to my Trader Joe's, I'm like, I hope I see him at the Trader Joe's. (laughs)
2: <laughs> wear, a, wear a t-shirt wear a dell's t-shirt or something like i'll get you one yeah i'll get I'm you definitely i'll definitely
0: hang out with me but um he's so wonderful oh my god that
2: was an actual like a dream come true i didn't know it was a dream until it was done then i'm like wait i always wanted to do that that was yeah. so cool oh what an absolute and just truly genuine and wonderful and smart and funny and i could i could write a million profiles yeah. Anytime you need a profile, Peter, come to us, we're your girls.
0: And he was such a, he is such a good sport about listening to all of us be horny for him.
2: And we just really I mean, appreciate it. <laughs> the fact that he has not turned off DMs, period, is a testament <laughs> to him as a person. Because the first dick pic, I would have been like, goodbye. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're just so happy to have had him. And
0: I mean, I don't even know. Is We're going to take a little bit of a tone shift, I feel like. For- Talking about this week's episode, right? We are,
2: but the theme is still high high fun. and and, But yeah, the subject gets a little dark. Gets a little dark. (laughs) But that's what we do best, high-low, dark-funny. Absolutely, 100%.
0: Oh, and uh, just so that everybody is aware, my dog, Sophie, is on one right now. So if you hear any barking or any kind of little doggy noises, just know that it's there. Do you want to say the theme, or do you want me to say the theme?
2: I want you to say the theme because it's your idea.
0: Okay. <laughs> um. So this theme this week is entitled "I'm Gonna Win That Molly Crew Mirror If It Fucking Kills Me," and hopefully you know the reference. If not, um, it comes from my favorite Bikini Kill song called "Carnival." <laughs> And in the middle of the song, Kathleen Hanna says, I'm going to win the Molly Crew mirror if it fucking kills me. i win that Molly Crew mirror
2: if it fucking kills me. And why are we doing a, a theme with that title? What is the theme itself about?
0: <laughs> well, I, I think quite obviously the theme is about carnivals, circuses, sideshows, things of this nature. And there's a lot of movies, actually, about this. I mean, there's there's been many since the beginning of Hollywood. And so I, I think it's an interesting way into movies because, first of all, it's a world that I, I think I, along with a lot of other people, are kind of fascinated in because uh, it feels like it's its own thing with its own rules and its own, you know, sort of tempo. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I will say that I think that the concept of, like, the carnival and the circus and stuff has changed over time. I think, you know, I certainly went to a lot when I was a kid. I don't know about you.
2: Not, I only went once. Uh, I went to Barnum & Bailey in New York City. And then there were always kind of, like, little... uh, Most of my experience with, like, circuses and carnivals was, like, um, small-town county fairs where they would have yes. like carnival type arrangements but it wasn't really like the point of going there was other stuff going on behind it but there was kind of like a a setup entry point with like some animals and some games yeah. and like that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I think by the time I had gone to I mean a carnival we called it like a fair like that was like there used to be this thing called the North Georgia State Fair and it would happen like you know kind of in the fall and uh it, for me it was truly just a place to like wear my cool jean jacket and run around with my middle school friends and you know <laughs> you know l- like talk to boys it i could care less honestly about the rides i just wanted to like see and be seen type of thing right but i think that at that time The carnival, the fair, was more or less just, like, kind of weird roller coasters and Ferris wheels and funnel cakes. It was kind of less of, like, I think the stuff that was in both of our movies this week, like, that iteration, I think, had kind of fallen out of fashion, Yeah, if you know what I mean.
2: I mean, for people, for sure, they still... Definitely abused animals for a very long time in most circuses, but there I think there there was a point in time around the time that both of our our movies are set where there was this real push culturally for like the human curiosities, yeah, so it's like when Sarah Bartman and you know people like like the geeks and the like people would be kind of dragged around for their and paraded around because they showed any kind of physical difference. Um, right, So that definitely fell out of favor, but it's weird that it was like a cultural trend at some point to be like, look yeah. at this person, they're not like us, let's put them on the road and make yeah. money off of them. It was just a very, very strange point in time, for sure.
0: Well, and that's that's what I think I, I mean about these movies this week, but also kind of movies in this, I don't know, micro-genre. I don't know if you'd call, you know, carnival movies a micro-genre or not, but it's a kind of a good conduit to talk about things like you know, differences amongst people and how people are treated for being different, but also talking about, like, kind of greed and kind of the dark side of life, I would say, I think, which is plays really heavily into my movie this week. Yeah, I just think that those are all topics that seem to come up
2: in a lot of these movies, you know what I mean? Completely. Completely. And also the concept of like, shutting it down. Like, there were definitely, it didn't work, but there were definitely people who were like, this is inhumane, shut it down in both of our films. And people were like, no, we're not doing that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's for me, I actually don't, I know that there is actually a lot of literature. I mean, I know my, my movie this week is based off of a book, but also sort of like, there's been a lot of discourse and, and academic work, actually, about, um the world of of these films and like the carnival world and that kind of stuff yeah my, i don't know a ton about it but i like i said i think it's fascinating the you know my kind of entry point into it from that way is essentially cult movies because you know the origin of the kind of you know cult film sort of is you know it kind of rests in that world of the medicine show of the carnival and a lot of like early folks in exploitation movies and cult movies kind of came from this world mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting because there is you know uh, uh, i guess it is an exploitation to a certain degree generally yeah. you know what i mean right. so i don't know i'm i was first of all i have not seen your movie in so long I I just think it's a masterpiece. I mean, I think it's like so well made. I think it's by a director that is like I mean, it's just like early work by a very famous director, and it's the it it, it kind of goes in line with his uh, subsequent work, but also is totally different, which I really appreciated. Yeah, and um. And, I, and I'm also glad for my movie this week, we get to talk about a movie from the 40s, which is like, you know, it doesn't happen often, but when it does,
2: yeah. uh, it's exciting. So 100 percent, 100 percent. I'm going first this week. So I will just tell you that my film was released in 1980. Uh, the screenplay is by Christopher Devorum, Eric Bergren, and David Lynch. It is directed by David Lynch. And my film is The Elephant Man.
0: He's English. He is 21. His name is John Merrick. At no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human
1: being as this man.
2: So we are starting with an incredible cast. Uh, You know, Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, Anne Bancroft, John Gielgud, just Mm -hmm. like really heavy hitters Mm -hmm. right up front. Um, And like you said, a director who has come to be very well known and respected for focusing on kind of the oddities of life. I think that... I don't think we've ever done a David Lynch movie on this pod yet, but um, we're also not going to go into the, it's too much to go into the history of him now. I think we should probably do like a David Lynch episode if we're going to do that. But, yeah, um, for sure. but he definitely is like, you know, most people know him in a, in a mainstream way from Twin Peaks, the TV show that was like revolutionary and freaked people out. But he's an incredible filmmaker who is very funny, like interviews and, and, documentaries that I've seen with him. He's very, very funny. But he likes to focus on the oddities of life and the dark underbelly of 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 stories and kind of draw. He does a lot of great character work where he draws out that darkness or focuses on an event that is a catalyst for the darkness that he then kind of pulls into a very strange and meandering but disturbing story. So, you know, movies like Mulholland Drive and he's just done so many things like again twin peaks the tv series blue velvet eraser head i mean like he just yeah
0: he i actually recently this is so this is embarrassing but i saw lost highway for the first time like oh. a couple days ago and for you know it was like a movie that came out kind of when we were you know i guess like in the 90s in the later 90s and I was like wow this movie (laughs) like you know I mean it's totally in line with everything else he's ever done but it was also very of the era you know musically and fashion wise and I was like wow I'm triggered right
2: now by all these (laughs)
0: collarless collarless leather (laughs) jackets and stuff I was like oh my
2: god (laughs) <laughs> I know it's very, very specific, he, and yeah. most of his films have specific, have a specific look. Um, but that one, you know, I think that and Mulholland Drive also, like Mulholland Drive, has kind of more of a, yeah, even though it came out in 2001, has kind of an old Hollywood. Yeah. kind of aesthetic to it but yeah lost highway is specifically 1997 it's in a very funny way <laughs> yeah um, but yeah but he's he's cool again we'll probably do an episode where we go more in depth into his life and his work but he's 77 he's still out there making stuff and he's just incredibly cool and yeah. i to my knowledge at the time of this recording not problematic or hasn't said anything fucked up in terms of culturally fucked up like, he says fucked up things all the time, um, but that's just because he's a weirdo. <laughs> and not because he's, like, me.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so the important thing to know about this film also is that it's based on, the, on a true life story. Joseph Carey Merrick was born in 1862 and died in 1890. Uh, he was a real person who lived in England, and he was known for having these severe deformities. Which... Over time, we've come to know as proteus syndrome, which causes excessive growth of bones, skin, organs, and tissue, like everything in your body essentially could be affected by this. And it wasn't really named or discovered that until 1979, even though people had suffered from it well before that it wasn't really studied in a way that it could be diagnosed or explained to the to the public at large until like 1979 and it only affects 1 in 1 million people um so it's incredibly in, Exceedingly rare. It's a very rare and it's a rare genetic condition, and the life expectancy because of how aggressively it attacks the body, it's the life expectancy is not more between you know nine and twenty nine years old. So Joseph Merrick didn't show signs of this illness. In some instances, it says he didn't show until he was five years old. In some, it says he didn't show. He showed it like a few months after being born. And my sources are like you know Encyclopedia Britannica and biography, but. There's just conflicting information in some of these instances, but he was young. Let's just say he was young when he first started to show symptoms. Um, his mom died of bronchial pneumonia when he was 11, and his dad kind of tried to put him to work, like, out in the street. He had, like, you know, his own haberdashery business, and he tried to employ his son. But, you know, the increasing—his his appearance and his increasing um, tumors and growths kind of made it impossible for him to be out on the street selling things. Uh, so he was confined to a workhouse when he was 17 and worked there for almost four years. And then he he actually ran away to join the circus when he was 21 because he figured that was where he could find work. And that's where he was discovered by Dr. Frederick Treves. Um, so all of that is real. We, we see that kind of happen in the the movie. We don't get much of his backstory. We don't see much of his backstory, but his the way that he meets Treves is is real. That's how it really happened. And again, when he, it's really sad, but when he was 27 years old, he died of um, a broken vertebra. And other sources, again, say he died of accidental suffocation, but it seems like it was a mix of both because his head was three feet in circumference and it was too heavy for him to hold up. So if he laid down to sleep, uh, he would die. And it was, again, probably a combination of both accidental suffocation and a broken vertebra. Um, but he was only 27 years old, which is really sad. So the Elephant Elephant Man movie is based on a real case um, and a real person. And I think that it's it's something that David Lynch, like he truly does a great job in this movie of focusing on Merrick's humanity. I will just tell you right off the bat that this movie makes me cry like a fucking baby. This is yep. this is my notebook. This is my Steel Magnolias. It's the elephant man. Like there are yeah. several points of this film where I just break down Me too. Um, Cause I cannot stand to see marginalized people or differently affected people treated poorly. I just, I cannot stand it in my bones. I hate seeing it. I hate it so much. Um, and it's been like that since I was a little kid. The first time I saw this movie, I was, of course, way too young. Um, yeah. <laughs> <but> <laughs> my grandmother loved it. So I watched it with her and I was like, I don't know, 9, 10, 11. And it just always made me fucking furious and sad that how he was treated. So... I will get into my my little one-sentence synopsis before we start talking about that part of the film. And my one-sentence synopsis is that an intelligent and thoughtful man is confined to a life of circus-based misery due to his genetic condition that gives him a bumpy and enlarged appearance. Mm-hmm. So again, like it's because it's the circus, you get to kind of first see how he's introduced by Bites, who's the guy who kind of owns him, so to speak. Like, you know, there's another way to put it. Like, he owns this. He owns a human being. He's enslaved him. And um, of course, there's a story about how uh, the reason that John Merrick looks like this is because he was born to a mother who was trampled by elephants in Africa. Because we got to find a way to blame both. We got to find a way to blame moms and Africa whenever possible in the circus. (laughs) You circus. said a mouthful. The <laughs> circuses are fucking relentless when it comes to women and Africa specifically.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So everyone is like, there are a few people again, like trying to shut this circus down. And it's specifically because of Merrick, where they're like, this is not okay that you're treating this man this way. This is. Great. And some people are like, it doesn't, you would think it comes from a place of. Um, like humanity. But I think the way it's presented by Lynch is kind of like, this is too gross for us to even look at. Like, this is not even, like, this goes too far even in the spectacle of, like, the human curiosity. So there's this instant, like, before you even meet or see Merrick, you're instantly aware of how uncomfortable his presence makes people. And Treves comes along, and again, he's a doctor, and he's kind of curious, and he wants to meet Merrick. So he sets up this private meeting with Bites and then you get to really see not only what he looks like but how he lives cuz he is treated like an actual like an absolute animal. Yeah. So bites kind of keeps him in this dank basement dwelling or in a crate with monkeys and he kind of, you know, he's he eats potatoes, he eats like like he just eats nothing and bites beats him all the time for anything. Like if he makes a noise, he gets beaten. If he He just is in a miserable situation. And so when Treves first meets him, and he wants to treat him in in a medical sense. So, you know, the little boy that works with Bites kind of runs and is like, hey, uh, Merrick's not doing so well because Bites beat the shit out of him again. So the first time they meet, they're kind of, or the first time he kind of comes in contact with him, he treats him as like a medical curiosity himself. And he kind of shows him off to his other doctor friends and is like, you know, I'm working on something big here. Um, but then because of this beating, he's actually falls into Treves' care. And what's interesting to me is that, like, Treves, when he's talking to Gom, which is um, the John Gielgud character, who's the governor of the hospital, he says you know i he basically assumes that he's unintelligent and then he says or i hope he is cuz he's kind of realizing that like if this guy is like a fully sentient human being then i don't know how he has survived his own life yeah. to this point so, it's mm-hmm. so sad to see that moment where he's like, "I kind of hope he is." So he moves him into the hospital, and he's kind of trying to keep it secret, But everybody knows that he's there because nurses are screaming and people are freaking out every time they have to bring him a cup of tea. And then we also meet this this night guard who mm. flat out says he's going to make money off of him. Like he just walks in first night and is like, treats him like a spectacle and just makes him feel makes Merrick feel so deeply unsafe in a place where he's supposed to find comfort. And since he's incurable, nobody thinks he should be there anyway. Um, so you know, Treves is trying to do his his best to like encourage people to think that Merrick should stay. And Cargom's like, I don't know, man, this is weird. Like you prepared for this interview, and he can only say like three words, and like this is weird. And then after when they leave, again, a scene that makes me cry. Uh, Merrick just starts reciting a verse from the Bible. And they come back and he's like, what the fuck? You can talk? And he's like, yeah, I can talk and I can read. I'm a very eloquent speaker, actually. But we don't hear his voice for 40 minutes into the movie because he's scared. Um, He's completely terrified of this situation because his whole life, he's essentially, you know, again, since his mother died, since his father wasn't able to help him, he's been treated and, you know, and again, as his body continues to grow these, you know, fibrous and tumorous growths, he's treated increasingly more like an outcast. So he doesn't trust anybody. And it's he's, But when he starts talking and he's like, yeah, I used to read the Bible every morning. And like, there's just something about that. I think what makes me cry about that scene is that there's this notion that at one point in his life, he had love and care. And then he lost that. And so he's aware of what he has lost. Not just the situation he's currently in, but he's aware of what he... It just breaks me down every fucking time. Yeah. Every fucking time. So Treves kind of just, like, takes over Merrick's life and bites like, yo, I want my fucking moneymaker back. And Treves is like, nope, all you do is profit from this man's misery. And in a very interesting turn... Bites turns to Treves and he's like, yo, doc, you do too. Because he's like, did you not just like have him up in front of your whole medical board? Yeah. He's like, did you not just like show him off for your own personal gain, for your studies and the advancement of your own career? And I think maybe it's because Anthony Hopkins is just such a great actor, but there's something you could see in his eyes in that scene where he's like, oh shit, like if I'm going to keep Merrick here, it has to be purely altruistic. Like it can no longer be me writing about him or showing him off. So there's kind of a a turn then where where Trees Trees becomes, becomes more like his friend or like a caretaker and really wants to understand what Merrick's life has been. So now that he's kind of got everybody on board... Because, you know, they realize that he might not be cured, curable, but he's definitely a human being who can think and talk and deserves some care. The governor of the hospital actually writes a letter to the London Times asking for help to keep Merrick in his own secure lodging. And it works. So Treves, like, invites him to tea. And that scene breaks me down because he meets Treves' wife and he cries. From and He says he's he's never been treated so well by a beautiful woman. But mm-hmm. one would argue that he's never been treated so well by anyone. Like he's never been invited into a home. And it's just, it's again, it's it's so affecting. The movie is so affecting. And I think it's maybe because Lynch shows us what Merrick looked like right away, that that yeah. is no longer the, you know, that the shock of that is, Gone early on, so you can just focus on the story and the humanity. I think that's a really important directorial move yes. um, that they made with the script and with the the directing, for sure. But yeah, we kind of like get into Merrick's life then at this point and realize that you know, like he's again, he's he's feeling more comfortable. He's got his own little suit. Uh, he meets this actress who's played by Anne Bancroft. Her name's Mrs. Kendall, and she's just she's just such a lovely kind of entry point into the film as well, because she is, she's just kind of enamored of him, but she doesn't treat him like an experiment. Like she just truly is his friend um yeah. and finds him, you know, again, thoughtful and intelligent and curious and just wants to kind of dig in to that with him. Um, you know, she gives him her picture and just like wants to make his life comfortable. So they develop like a really interesting friendship. And again, but the hits just keep on coming. I cry again when right when Merrick reaches this point of safety where they are so careful with him in his own room, his own apartment, essentially, that they won't even hang mirrors. Here comes this fucking night guard with a gang of people oh. from the bar, and they break into his, his flat and just terrorize him, like absolutely terrorize him, like pouring oh. booze on him and lifting him up in the air and showing him mirrors. And like, he's just they're just terrorizing making women kiss him and lay on him and like it awful. is it, it just it may, and oh just it truly makes me weep every time i see that i hate that it's just brings up the ire and makes me so mad yeah. but so again like so i think what's the most disturbing is that this was his safe space and he every time he thinks he's comfortable or he thinks he gets a footing it's demolished by some uncaring person yeah um, there's
0: that part where he oh my god this is it's just bone chilling and makes me feel so sad for him is when he talks about he just says i think this simple thing he says is the nighttime yeah knowing that the nighttime brings him the most pain because of this like ongoing situation with this guard
2: Completely. and it just like
0: breaks my heart you know oh, he doesn't have a moment's peace
2: no peace. And he, and there's, again, like in the modern sense, there's a point where you might be asking like, well, why doesn't he tell trees or why doesn't he tell someone? But then you flash back to the earlier part of the film where it's like, well, he's scared. You know, he's always in terror because he doesn't feel that his life is his own. And yeah. he relies on people to get by. So he's afraid that if he complains, I'm sure that that something will go wrong for him. He, he wasn't raised in a world where he could say something and have people hear him or understand him mm-hmm. um or care for him, so it's just again like this stunning study essentially of the human condition in that way, where he's reverting back to what he knows, and you know the nighttime is unsafe for him, and always has been, but oh, it's just just makes me cry, it just breaks me down, so yeah. I will say, and i'm I am going to spoil the mm-hmm. ending of this movie because it's based on a real real case, but one night trees essentially finds out what's been going on. And he fires the night guard and he apologizes to Merrick. But there's a little interstitial in there where Merrick actually leaves that night, like where he kind of gets terrorized and and goes off on... Um, an adventure goes back to the circus, essentially, and lands in France and then ends up coming back. Um, again, another scene that makes me cry when he comes back and these kids in the train station are like pelting him with things and he's, you know, being chased by the police. And it's, again, maybe one of the more famous lines of the film, but they kind of corner him in a restroom and he t- they take off his hood and he just screams at them, you know, I'm, I'm a man, I'm not an animal and again, breaks me down every fucking time. It just, no. this movie just, just makes me cry throughout. And it's like a two hour movie, but it just, it's just, again, like him recognizing his humanity is one thing, but him voicing his humanity is like new to him and new to us as a viewer and just breaks my heart that he has to even say that, that people around the world who are treated in this way have to say that is heartbreaking. Yeah but it's yeah it's it's just he he makes his way back to treves but it's really sad um that he has to go through that and then that's when treves apologizes and it's like i had no idea what's going on and he has some comfort and some some joy after that point cuz he's back with his friends and he likes that he has friends and you know but it, it's also revealed at some point when treves is talking to um mother's head the kind of head nurse uh, it's revealed that he's dying. And he's dying because of his condition. So they're talking about Miss Kendall, who wants to take him to the theater for an evening. And they're like, does she know he's dying? And he's like, Trevis is like, I think so. Like, she has to know. But they go they go to the theater. And again, another sob moment where at the end of the show, Miss Kendall comes out to the stage and points him out, and the, the audience gives him a standing ovation. I think in real life, uh, Merrick did go to the theater quite a few times uh, from from most accountings, but I just thought that was a really lovely, lovely moment um, because then he goes home and he lays down, quote, like a real person, unquote, and goes to sleep, which he's never been able to do before because it will kill him, and it does, and he dies, so... Just heartbreaking movie from start to fucking finish because of the goddamn circus.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, um, there's so, yeah. Definitely like such a tearjerker for me. There's so many parts that not just like the parts where he's being treated so poorly and so inhumanely, but the, you know, the part where the other, I guess the other employees of this circus, of this, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, bites traveling show take him out of the cage
2: oh.
0: and like I mean I fucking ball when that happens like they're so gentle with him and I just you know it's that moment where you're just like yeah I mean this is such a what I mean what a story I mean I honestly like I had to go and like read about him the real person yeah because i did you know it's just the thing where you kind of know the general legend but i kind of wanted to know more about him and it was just like it's so fascinating but this movie i think is i think it does like it, it tells the story without it and you think okay there's a director like david lynch right you're thinking well you know this could be this very i don't know like scary, sensationalist thing in the hands of of a director who kind of comes from the worlds of, like, cult film and that kind of stuff. But I think he does... Like, the fact that this feels like his most kind of, like, commercially popular, you know, straight-up narrative, you know, film, I think says a lot, because it's like, you know, it's the story itself is so sad and so heartbreaking that... He, him playing it straight is the actual way to go. You know what I mean? One
2: hundred percent. And it it received like eight Academy Award nominations and it was like his most commercially, I think one of his most commercially successful films. But also the the, the fact that it wasn't nominated or didn't receive any kind of honor for the makeup effects apparently prompted the Academy uh, to create the award for best makeup the following year. Yeah. Which I think is cool.
0: That is cool but um yeah just i'm so i watched it on the criterion collection disc it looked gorgeous i mean it's this gorgeous like black and white i mean every time i see a movie from the victorian era it's just it's fascinating because it feels like I mean it's industrial which I also think is is a, a there are there are some David Lynchian parts to the film which is that there's a lot of like industrial sounds and like clanking and there's you know <laughs> you know like that's like in every one of his movies but I also feel that like that is also like a, a part of this era right, right of the Victorian era of you know this dark murky London kind of world so I don't know. I just think it's a i like I said, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's like such a a great film and very sad and very moving and yeah, uh, yeah. fits the theme perfectly. So. It
2: does. thank you. Thank you. And it should be seen. I think that sometimes people who are not familiar with him hear David Lynch and think that's probably not for me because it's going to be weird. But, yeah, that's not always the case. And I think that, you know, even his films that might be a little bit more artistic are still very worthy of watching. But yeah. this one, in particular, is a great entry point to seeing kind of what he does and and yeah. you know, what he does with a story. And it's based the movie is based on a couple of books. If you're interested in reading about Merrick at all, um, Joseph Carey Merrick, John Merrick. One is called The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences. (laughs) (laughs) You know the word, by Frederick Treves. Um, (laughs) Treves did end up writing about Merrick um, after his death. Uh, And the other is The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Montague. Yeah, Uh, So that's, you know, definitely look those up if you're interested in learning more about this real-life case. Um, But yeah, I thought that when I... Her, when I was presented with this theme, I thought there's no other movie for me to choose. This yeah, was too important in the scope of my life, and yeah, I just can't can't not choose this.
0: Yeah. Also, Mel Brooks produced it. People maybe don't know that because he didn't make that very public. Yeah. Uh, and he did it. He didn't make it public because he was like, I don't want people to think this is going to be,
2: you like know, a Zany- saddles. Or exactly. Something.
0: Yeah. Uh, which I think is smart. I think it's very smart.
2: Right? Yeah. He did that with a couple of films where he was like, "Uh, I, I know what my oeuvre is." Yeah. So I'll just be behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. And again, like married to Anne Bancroft, so yeah. It's, yep. You know, incredible that they get to they get to work together in a, a variety of ways throughout their mm-hmm. lives. But that's again for a story for another episode. Yeah. But yeah, I just I love this.
0: Yeah, great choice. All right, so. Are you ready to talk about my movie for the theme this week? You know it. You okay, know it. so my movie for the theme. I'm gonna win that Motley Crue mirror if it fucking kills me. Is a movie from 1947. It uh, was based on a book by William Lindsay Gresham. Uh, screenplay is by Jules Firthman, Directed by Edmund Goulding, and it's called Nightmare Alley.
1: See those yokels out there. It- Gives you sort of a superior feeling, as as if you were in the know and they were on the outside looking in.
0: Have you ever seen this
2: film before? I have not, and I also didn't see the the new one, right? The remake. Absolutely. So this is my first time going in, and I loved it.
0: Yeah. I thank you. I'm glad you liked it because I am really excited to talk about this movie. I'm just such a big fan of it, and you know, it's um, I know it was kind of hard to watch for some folks because it's not streaming which is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, about physical media mm-hmm. and just about the idea that not every movie in the world is, like, available on streaming. And so, you know, as movie fans, you kind of have to do the extra legwork. I know there was a um, a version on Internet Archive, uh, but also Criterion Collection put out a, a Blu-ray of it, which, you know, I think is incredible because the special features are really good, too. So, nice. you know, if, uh, if, if it's something that you could afford, I would say... Get the Blu ray because it's great. Yeah, I, you know, there was a remake of it a couple years ago that was done by Guillermo del Toro starring Bradley Cooper. And, you know, I, when I had heard that he was going to do Nightmare Alley, uh, having been such a fan of the original, I was actually kind of excited, which I feel yeah. like is kind of rare, uh, at least for me, Definitely. where, you know, it's like sometimes <laughs> you hear about like remakes and you're like, ugh. Just leave it alone. The first is such a masterpiece. But in this way, I was like, this is perfect. And you know, I I watched it obviously when it came out. I actually thought it was pretty good. I mean, I really nice. think that Guillermo del Toro was like almost a perfect person to capture like the ambiance of the carnival. And right. you know, he brought this like creepiness to it, which I really appreciated cuz I do think this movie is dark. I mean this is the original is dark the book which I just actually started reading. I just, I Ooh. borrowed it from the library and was like I'm going to read Nightmare Alley the book. I haven't gotten too far into it but it's um it's dark. It's actually darker then really? you know the movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. And we'll, what? you know, we'll talk about why that is. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious why a nineteen a movie from 1947 couldn't talk about certain things. As we know from the bad seed now, <laughs> it's like uh yeah,
2: the production like 80% of the movies that we
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, there's the production code, and you couldn't talk about having sex before marriage. Wow. But uh, let me just do like a one-sentence synopsis and we'll just, you know, dive right in. So Nightmare Alley is about a shrewd carnival worker who seeks fame and fortune, experiences a dramatic ascent and descent, posing as an all-knowing clairvoyant. Boom. That's what it's about. So, so this movie is ostensibly about this character named Stan Carlisle okay? And he is played by the classic film star Tyrone Power. Now, I'm not sure if people kind of know Tyrone Power. I mean, you know, we talk about the studio system, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. he was a, a 20th Century Fox star, but, you know, was probably one of their biggest, if not the biggest star at that studio, okay? Right. and. In the in the '40s, uh, and even prior prior to you know like his early career, he was essentially a matinee idol. I mean, he was extremely good looking, which I think comes across in Nightmare Alley really well. I think he's very dreamy in that movie.
2: You know what's wild to me? Tyrone Power has never been in my wheelhouse. I feel like, even though I know it didn't exist back then, I feel like he has the face of a porn addict.
0: Which may be attractive. Uh, Maybe. To each
2: their own. Don't <laughs> let me yuck your yum. I'm just saying, for me, I'm going Montgomery Clift every time, because Tyrone Power looks like he could do some damage to me.
0: Oh, well, I mean, it's those, like, beautiful eyelashes. But to me, like, Tyrone Power, he's he's hunky for me. Yeah, And um, almost kind of, like, too hunky for a role like this, but let, let me explain. Okay, so he was a matinee idol. He was an he was kind of like in these like adventure kind of like pirate swashbuckler movies, but he was also in a lot of like romances. And by 1947, Tyrone Power is like, he's basically like, where's my dark turn, right? He wants to change his image. You know, he had just gone back from World War II. He was like, I saw a lot of shit over there. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, do something a little bit meatier, a little bit darker, okay? So- He encourages the studio, like I said, 20th Century Fox, to buy the rights to this book, Nightmare Alley, so he could star in the adaptation, right? And the studio was like, okay, we'll bite, but also, like, we're nervous because this is our biggest star, he makes a lot of money for us, and now he wants to do a a movie about a character who's a pretty bad guy. Yeah right, this film is essentially a noir. I mean, it's it's a film noir movie. It, it you know it obviously has a lot of of things that borrow from that sort of genre tradition, um, mm-hmm. but it also has like this whole carnival background to it too, which I think was you know pretty unique for this time. So the thing the thing about Nightmare Alley, like I said before, the the book was that you know it is pretty dark, right. and remember you know production code meant that you couldn't do some of the storylines in the book on screen like there was stuff like premarital sex i mean at some point stan and one of the other uh carnival employees has like a shotgun wedding and you're kind mm-hmm. of like well what's that all about but they doesn't they don't talk about the fact that they might have had sex before marriage you know it's just stuff that wasn't right. discussed in film there apparently was uh uh, an abortion storyline in the book that doesn't appear in the film. And then there's just that sort of general bad scene thing, which is like, bad people have to pay for their crimes, right? And it's like, right. I mean, that is just so crazy if you think about it now, but back in this code era,
2: yeah. You could they were have... not messing around.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. And, <laughs> you know, also, I think with... I might give away spoilers because, come on, this movie was made in 1947. But... The the ending of the movie is slightly different than the book. Obviously, I think the book ends exactly where you think it's going to end. But then the movie goes this extra step of like, mm-hmm. you know, a character that comes in and saves Stan at the end of it. So, you know, think about that. So the production code, you know, had its hands in this, in this movie. But I got to say, even in spite of all this, this is a pretty dark movie. The messaging and 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 the sort of tone of this movie is dark, but, you know, it's also like, these are dark characters, and they're yeah. doing some fucked up shit, right? So here's the thing about Stan. So at the very beginning of the film, th- the, the film kind of sets up his scenario pretty quickly, okay? Which is that he's working at a traveling carnival circuit, okay? And he's working with, like, a bunch of folks, including someone who they call the Geek... And I want to read this passage from Wikipedia about it, because I actually did not know a lot, if anything, about the geek shows. And I just think it's very fascinating. So for those who don't know, I'll just read it for for you and for me. Quote, Geek shows were an act in traveling carnivals and circuses of early America and were often part of a larger sideshow. The Build Performers Act consisted of a single geek who stood in the center ring to chase live chickens. It ended with the performer biting the chickens' heads off and swallowing them. The geek shows were often used as openers for what are commonly known as freak shows. It was a matter of pride among circus and carnival professionals not to have traveled with a troupe that included geeks. Geeks were often alcoholics or drug addicts and paid with liquor, especially during Prohibition, or with narcotics. Mm. Beak and all? Beak and all. Yeah. So you know that now about geeks. And you, right at the gate in the film, Nightmare Alley, you see Stan watching these carnival employees handling the geek. And he is both fascinated and fearful of what's happening in front of him. And I think, for me, after I read this Wikipedia entry, I got a better sense, really, of what Stan would think of this job, Right, right. It is something, it's like a fate that he does not want to receive at all, right? Yeah, and, and it
2: seems like geeks were kind of like out of fashion even during the time. Yeah. So it wasn't like they, you know, uh, contrary to the Elephant Man, it wasn't like people were like, look at our beautiful spectacle. They're like, hey, we got this. This will draw you in because we know it's disgusting.
0: Right. And the idea of it being this this job that was... I mean, you know, these are people who were addicts and alcoholics Mm -hmm. and they were driven to such desperate measures that they were willing to participate in something like this. I mean, that is a part of the movie that it's like Stan is just constantly haunted by this notion, right? The geek for him is just rock bottom for anybody working in this world and he doesn't want to be in that position. And so... This is the primary motivation for Stan, then, to kind of do all of his evil bidding, which is that he wants to get to the top of the game. Like, he wants to leave the carnival. He wants to be famous and, you know, make a lot of money. And so what ends up happening is that he starts working with the psychic of the carnival, and her name is Zena, And she's played by Joe Blondell, okay? And Zena has been working the show for a long time alongside her husband, Pete, okay? And Pete is, you know, basically a barely functioning alcoholic himself. And the story is that Xena feels very responsible for his alcoholism because, you know, the common perception at at the carnival is that, you know, Pete was driven to drinking because she was getting a ton of attention from, you know, men during their show. And, um, you know, so Xena has this responsibility for him and she feels like she's trying to get him sober, okay? Yeah. And the thing about Pete and Zena is that their show consisted of this grift, basically, where Zena was sort of reading off people, like, information that people were writing on pieces of paper. She was sort of, like, psychically knowing what was on the sheet of paper, but, of course, it was a secret code that her and Pete came up with, to signal, you know, what the information was going to be beforehand so, you know, that she would basically know what everyone was going to say. And obviously, this is like some incredible bulletproof grift to the point where Zena's like, I'm not telling anybody about the code because it's going to be my cash cow. Like, anytime I want to get out of the business, I'm going to use the code and, you know, become famous, which is, of course incredibly alluring to Stan because that's his M.O. He wants to be famous and he wants to leave the carnival. So he does what I think is kind of an interesting reversal on the femme fatale thing, which is that he is kind of an homme fatale. Yeah, he's using his, you know, his sexual uh, prowess and his, you know, attractiveness being that he has very thick alluring eyelashes and he's just tr- trying to you know get Zena to uh fall in love with him so that she'll give him the code share the code with him okay and you know stan is sort of doing this while also being sort of like interested in another uh one of the women who worked the carnival this woman named molly who is played by colleen gray and Molly is like, a younger woman. She kind of has this amazing act, which they only show kind of briefly, where it almost is like she's sitting between... I don't know if it's, like, a Tesla coil scenario, but she's kind of this, like, electric woman where, first of all, her outfit is so great, this, like, kind of bra and short set that has, like, the hands over the boobs or something. Like, I love it. I love the outfit. Uh, But then there's a scene where she's actually demonstrating like her job and she's sitting in a chair and there's kind of electric current running through her hands. And it's my favorite part of the movie. I think it's part of the movie that a lot of people visually remember, which is that scene of her kind of, you know, with the electric running through her fingers. It's really cool. But so here's the thing, Pete, Pete is basically drying out because Zena is trying to, uh, you know, basically get him off the booze, okay? And one night he comes out of the trailer and he sees Stan and Stan has like a bottle of moonshine and Stan's like, oh shit, let me, let me hide this moonshine from Pete because we know that he's drying out, right? And then Pete sort of, you know, starts talking about how it's really hard to not be drinking as much and he's kind of desperate to drink and at some point Stan feels sorry for him and you know, goes into the footlocker and, like, gives him the bottle of what he thinks was moonshine. It's not, actually. It's, like, lighter fluid, essentially. And Pete drinks it, and then the next day is found dead by everybody at the carnival, okay? And Stan is like, oh, fuck, I might be responsible for this horrible accident. And also, at the same time, knowing that he's essentially trying to grift Xena out of this code. So he's in this very precarious position, but he's definitely like, I'm not telling anybody what happened. Like, it's, this is messy and I know it. But he feels very guilty about what happened to Pete, okay? So, what ends up happening is that Stan ends up, like, working with Xena, and then they start using the code at the carnival. And it's becoming very successful, and Stan's, like, really getting it. And then, uh, at a certain point, Stan and Molly, I guess, this isn't said in the film, but they kind of consummate the relationship. And then everybody at the carnival is like, well, now you gotta get married. So, and we all shun you for having premarital sex or something. I don't know why they shun them. I guess it's because they got together, and then were they basically got kicked out of the carnival is basically what happens so molly and stan go off uh leave the carnival and then they start their own act where stan becomes the xena character where he's like got a blindfold on and he's reading out people's secrets and that kind of stuff and he's called himself the great stanton and they're out there at these like fancy nightclubs and it's like a booming success and everything's going great for them. Uh, until one night in the audience is this psychiatrist and her name is Dr. Lilith Ritter. And if you saw the remake, this uh, character is played by Kate Blanchett. Okay. So this psychiatrist sees the show and is like, what is this? This is clearly a grift, but she's intrigued. And then Stan, at the same time, notices her and he decides that he wants to become one of her patients because he's got a lot of guilt from this Pete death and, you know, he's got a lot on his mind. So he goes to see Dr. Lilith and she has the habit of recording all of her sessions, okay? Which already is like, okay, she's recording sessions. Like, let's hope this doesn't go badly, right? So in the course of their sessions, they decide, Lilith and Stan, decide to that they want to go into cahoots with each other because Lilith is like... Listen, I got all this evidence of all these secrets from all these rich people, and maybe I can start feeding you some of these things for your act and then you'll make a lot of money. We'll split the money and that'll be the that'll be the grift, okay? So they kind of go into this arrangement together and it ends up going pretty well until it doesn't. and there's a patient of Dr. Ritters, who is this older rich man who is just obsessed with this like long-lost sweetheart of his. And you know, Stan is telling these people that he's able to communicate with the dead. So this man is desperate enough to be like, I want to communicate with this old, long-lost love of mine. So Stan eventually tries to rope Molly into this thing where he's like, Listen, you gotta dress up like this guy's you know, long lost love, we'll go to a cemetery, we'll set this whole thing up, and, you know, it'll be this, like, you know, he'll pay us tons of money to have this experience and everything, and, you know, that's when Molly, I think, starts to kind of question the morality of what they're doing. Because, essentially, that's, like, the biggest part of the film, right? Is this idea that there's, like, this grift going on amongst, like, all these people where... Stan is kind of acting as this medium, but also he's got kind of this like preacher quality to him. And, you know, he's, it's all about that, about like blind worship and, you know, believing in things and how much you're willing to pay for the experience of maybe somebody giving you something that you really want, but it might be fake. It might be a grift, right? And, you know, like I said, I might, I might spoil the movie. I might just do that. <laughs> but, you know, essentially, um, the plan falls apart. And, you know, Molly's, like, walking through the cemetery in this, like, old Victorian dress, and the guy sees it, you know, from far away and freaks out, and then she freaks out, and it just kind of goes from there. And what ends up happening is that Stan, you know, essentially gets found out as a fake. You know, as it turns out, Dr. Lilith Ritter who told him he was going to make all this money, you know, basically cheats him out of the money. Like, he gets the envelope, and it's like, you know, 1% of what he thought he was going to get from her. And, you know, it's just kind of like, I don't know, that kind of the ending of this whole scenario, right? Is that he uh, ultimately becomes the thing that he was so afraid of, which is that he turns to the bottle after he's found out as fake, and then essentially he becomes the geek. Right? And like I said, that the book ends it there. Right. Which is very powerful and very fucking dark. But then the movie, I think, goes a little bit further where he is essentially saved by Molly at the very end. But, right. you know, to me, I mean, this movie you know it has a lot of of that power for me it's like about the the messaging of like what the stand character is and about like what he'll do to get what he wants which is fame and fortune and it's it's this greed storyline that ultimately does him in yeah and you know it all takes place around the carnival which is exactly like what the theme is for this week which is you know obviously com- creates a a, a a interesting fascinating component around that kind of very simple storyline right completely
2: yeah that it's it's contributing to the underworld aspect and the you know somebody who's already starting at the bottom falling lower in in terms of our cultural identities and like it's really it's really interesting I thought they did a great job I was I was really happy to watch it because it was the kind of dark turning movie like twisting movie that I think I always associate with that time period but Mm -hmm. I never really see so I just I really loved it
0: well, I'm glad. Yeah, I uh, it, like I said. I actually like the remake. I think it's pretty pretty good. It's definitely evocative. It has like a really great style to it, but the original is great too. And um, like I said, there's there's a good a great Blu-ray of it if you want to see a good quality of it. Um, you know, like online, you might be able to find it on the Internet Archive and that kind of stuff. But um, I would say watch it if you can in the best quality. And yeah, it's I think it's um. It really is, like, one of the most interesting film noirs for my money. Like, I I, I like it. I like the carnival aspect to it. And mm-hmm. just from the time period, like, there's a lot of other things in this movie, too, that are very interesting. Like, there's tarot. And it's like, you know, it's about that kind of occult world, too, where, you know, yeah. Zena reads tarot cards. And there's this whole, like, you know storyline about her pulling Stan's tarot card and he and she keeps pulling the hanged man and that's very, mm-hmm. you know, symbolic of what's gonna happen to him. And you know, it it delves into that world of like psychics and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's so to me it's 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 a cool movie. Like I said, it's very dark, darker than it probably should be in 1947, uh, while also being up to production code standards, which I think was very fascinating. And yeah, uh, that's, for me, I was like, we got to talk about this movie for the theme, so.
2: I love it. Great, great, great
0: pick. Yes, thank you so much. Well, I, I had a fucking blast on this
2: episode, I have to say. I know, so fun. So fun. Great theme. Love it. Great guest, great movies. I mean, this is this is why we do this, folks.
0: Exactly. Um, well, listen, if you want to email us, please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com.
2: And you can find us on our social media at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter.
0: That's right. Plus, we have merch. Please go to the I saw what you did section of the exactly right shop to find it.
2: And, you you know, those bonus episodes are rolling out all the time. So just keep checking your feed because the old ones are coming up and the new ones are coming out once a month.
0: So so many episodes. You can't get rid of us. Well, listen, Danielle, do you want to tell them what the movies are for next week?
2: Yes. So the movies for next week are Birdie from 1984 and David and Lisa from
0: 1962. Oh, my God. Pew, 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 pew. Very exciting. Um, listen, Danielle, as always... A fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it.
2: Bye, guys. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.